Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I'm your host, Tyler Cobble, and today is April 26th, 2021, and we're going to be diving into this week's commercial real estate news from around the country uh, and, of course, the world. If you are joining us live or you are watching on YouTube, the question of the day, uh, which is something we're going to start doing here from now on, question of the day, which markets are you looking to invest in? I'm always curious to see whether that's your own market uh, or a secondary or tertiary market outside of your market, where are you looking to invest and why? Uh, let me know in the comments below. Uh, let's go ahead and kick off this week's news with the Nashville market. So pretty big announcement coming out of Mount Juliet this week. This is out of the Nashville Business Journal. Amazon.com's mammoth Mount Juliet hub opens in July, employing many more than first announced. This is pretty interesting because, you know, they're bringing 5,000 jobs uh, to, to Nashville, to downtown, uh, where they're going to be opening up an office tower. Well, two office towers now, but their Mount Juliet, uh, location, which is just East of Nashville, probably 30 minutes, give or take, they are going to be employing 3000 full and part-time workers. When they had originally announced, uh, this project, they were closer to about a thousand. So they three X, uh, the amount of people that they will be employing for this project. So it's, it's a pretty interesting building, too. It is 92 feet tall. Uh, it's nearly triple the maximum height of a typical distribution facility. You might be wondering, why would they do that? Well, the taller the ceilings are, the more packaging they can fit into a tighter place, right? And this is probably already about a million square feet. Let's see. Oh, the building is 3.52 million square feet, so even bigger. But you think about how much volume they get by adding, uh, adding those stories there. Jennifer says, awesome news. Yeah, that's, that's huge for Mount Juliet. Great to see. You know, when I, when I was growing up, Mount Juliet was a very, very small little town. Um, and it has really taken off in the last 10 to 15 years because uh, thanks largely in part to logistics and distribution, which is pretty exciting. Uh, let's see. It'll have another 80,000 square feet of office space and thousands of robots working alongside the 3,000 employees. It looks like it's by far the biggest bite of an Amazon pipeline that uh, will roughly triple the company's regional footprint in a matter of just a few years. We talked about uh, how much uh, space they actually take up um, on, a, on an episode a couple of weeks ago. They've got a lot of square footage in Middle Tennessee, which, of course, makes sense, right? I mean, within a day's drive, you can reach 80% of the population. So, of course, somebody like Amazon would want to be in Nashville. Looks like they've got 750 construction workers um, in and out of the building. That's crazy if you think about how many people, 750 construction workers to, to put this together. Looks like Panatonia Development is, is uh, doing the project. They are one of the biggest industrial developers um, in the area, for sure. Let's see. They, yeah, they had previously announced 1,000 full-time workers and received a $2 million state grant tied to that jobs pledge. I wonder if they went back and renegotiated that based on how many more employees they were going to have. Looks like uh, the employees will retrieve, pack, and ship smaller items such as electronics, books, and a range of general consumer goods. That's interesting. I never, You never know what they're actually keeping in those warehouses, so it sounds like this is going to be on the smaller side. Uh, they're planning on it taking about 14 months um, to, to construct the building. And, wow, it wasn't too far away from the uh, 2020 tornado that came through which if you're not familiar, it touched down in West Nashville, went all the way through 
basically downtown East Nashville and then headed out east. I think it was it touched down for maybe two hours, just kept going. Uh, looks like they, they missed it, though. Uh, looks like they are nearing completion. Uh, just a little footnote here. They're nearing completion on the first of their two downtown Nashville office towers uh, for their retail operations division. And they expect to fully employ about 5,000 people uh, in those two office towers. That's a lot, right? I mean, that's 8,000 jobs in the region uh, just in, in three, three buildings uh, for, for one company, which is a pretty big announcement. I mean, you look at uh, this past week, you know, past couple of weeks, Oracle announced 8,500 jobs. Um, you know, that's a lot of jobs coming to Middle Tennessee. And Nashville, Nashville's growth is so heavily based on job growth that, you know, that outlook for Nashville is looking pretty good over the next few years. All right, this next article is also from the Nashville Business Journal. Nashville International Airport plans $75 million satellite campus. This is pretty interesting because, you know, the Nashville Airport, when I, again, I keep saying, like, when I was growing up, back in my day, I feel like an old man <laughs> saying that all the time. Well, back in my day. Not, yeah, oh gosh. All right, Andy. Keep your, keep your Gen Z to yourself. <laughs> so what, Nashville's airport was tiny. Like I remember how small it was. I think it had like two terminals, maybe three terminals um, when I was growing up. And of course now, or concourses rather, now it's, it's just, it's massive. And look, it's nowhere near Atlanta or, or, or even Dallas or Chicago, right? But for a small city with a, a population of a million, we see a lot of travelers coming in and out of those gates. Um, so, of course, you're going to continue to just invest uh, in making the airport nicer and nicer. We got a, tri a round trip to London last year, which is wild for a little little Nashville. Um, it looks like they announced Wednesday plans for a freestanding satellite concourse near the main terminal to provide more gates to accommodate the anticipated growth of air travel demand across Middle Tennessee. Of course, as the city grows, you're going to have to grow your airports. Um, looks like they're going to meet the needs of incremental passenger growth uh, post-pandemic, which I'm sure is going to boom. Um, and they are expanding Concourse A. Uh, so the, the availability uh, will enable new construction uh, for Concourse A, which is great because, you know, whenever they take one of those down, it's, it's just a pain. Let's see. The, the, it's the airport's fifth major concourse and is scheduled to open in late 2023, along with several other projects currently underway. Uh, at BNA, they've got so much going on out there. It's amazing. Like just when you walk through the airport to see everything that's going on. Looks like they awarded Atlanta-based Holder Construction the contract uh, for an initial $12.65 million. And they are planning to approve funding for the construction as the project progresses over the next two years for an estimated $75 million total. That's pretty interesting. Looks like uh, it, it's, it's, the facility is going to be right around 89,000 square feet, uh, and they're planning on starting in fall of this year. They are going to be adding eight domestic aircraft gates, uh, a variety of concessions, customer amenities, and interior finishes. Plans also include a passenger shuttle system that will circulate between the main terminal and the satellite concourse. That's great. I mean, Nashville in the last few years has really up, up, updated and upgraded uh, the concessions uh, that they have in the shops uh, or in the airport. I know that they really had a focus on locally owned businesses, which was really cool to see um, when they were going through that initiative, trying to support local Nashville owned businesses. Um, let's see here. It'll be built adjacent to Concourse C. 
Um, and will serve narrow body and regional aircraft. Includes a goal of approximately $8 million in contract opportunities for small minority and women-owned business enterprises. Uh, and is estimated to create between 700 and 1,000 jobs. So there you go. They're continuing that initiative uh, that I was just talking about when they were going through and, and bringing new locally-owned businesses in. So that's that's awesome. I mean, creating 700 to 1,000 jobs with one terminal, be massive. You know, Andy, the only thing that uh, we we still we still have yet to see is a train from uh, from the airport to downtown Nashville. But one can dream, right? We're dreaming. I know. It'll be amazing. Um, cool. Well, that's 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 huge for for BNA. It's great to see for Nashville. Um, so we're excited about that one. This next article is pretty interesting. Coming from the Nashville Post, Germantown apartment building sells for $33.6 million. Um, group out of California pays $332,600 per unit for the Atlas. Now, $332,000 per door isn't quite a record in Nashville, but it's really close. I mean, that is a high, high price per door. Uh, I mean, Gosh, just a few years ago, I remember when, when an apartment complex sold for $280,000 a door, and everybody was like, wow, I can't believe a place in Nashville sold for that. And we covered the record here, Tyler. The record was the one in Brentwood. Yeah, isn't that crazy? That was so high. Um, so let's see. It's located at 200 Madison Street, sitting on 0.8 acres near the Christie Cookie Building. Uh, it's a five-story building with 101 apartments. That's interesting because that's, really, that's a really small apartment complex. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a very boutique style, uh, offering. Let's see. The group out of the California is called the GW Williams company, which is based in San Mateo and was founded in 1923. Uh, looks like a Charlotte based Delray Ventures is the one that sold it. They're a pretty big firm. Um, looks like they co-developed it with uh, Grove Park, which is based out of Brentwood. No Grove Park. Deal is the equivalent of about $332,673 per unit, which is close to the record of about $340,000. That's just, it's wild. Good to see another article from William Williams. He is on top of it. Um, We always send everything over to him. He's he's great. Great article, uh, writer, that's for sure. Rock and roll. All right, well, moving on to Market Watch. This week's market is probably going to be of no surprise because it has been absolutely booming for the last few years, and it's in a state, too, where you just expect it to be booming. What am I talking about? Well, Dallas-Fort Worth. We are in the Urban Land Institute's uh, Emerging Trends article, and Dallas has been exponentially growing. Uh, It's a boom town. It's really interesting to see. So uh, I think for the first time, uh, what was it, private equity or hedge funds rated uh, Dallas above the major metros, uh, which is really crazy to see because typically these secondary or these smaller markets, not Dallas isn't really that small, but compared to New York, LA, Chicago, it is. um, It is outranking the major markets in terms of desirability. So, you know, that's, that's big for the Southeast. Let's see. So they're they're lopping it in there with uh, with Charlotte, Denver, uh, Nashville, Portland, and Seattle uh, as the top six favorite boom towns, attracting far more than their share of smart young workers. And of course, right, Dallas is a cool town. Fort Worth is a little bit cooler, but Dallas is cool. Uh, there's a little rivalry there. My dad lives in Fort Worth, and it's like Dallas, Fort Worth is always butting heads. Those those two cities have grown so much they they're basically one city now. 
Um, and also, I mean, Dallas is it's it's in Texas, right? I mean, we talked about this before when we covered Austin. Uh, it is it's in a state with no income tax, so it's that's very attractive uh, to these major corporations and just any company in general that is looking to move to a business friendly environment. So in terms of overall real estate prospects, it is ranked number four, just behind Raleigh, Durham, Austin and Nashville home building. It is number three on the list. Number three. They've got a lot of land out there in Texas. I mean, they, their cities tend to really, really sprawl. Um, they, they did. Texas has done a great job with their interstate and highway systems. They're, they've just got really wide, you know, well-constructed interstate and highway systems, um, which definitely allows for that sprawl a little bit better. Let's see. It's part of the Super Sun Belt market, um, which are still affordable for businesses and residents uh, while they, they have powerhouse economies, um, which is really cool. I mean, you know, also in the Super Sun Belt, you've got Atlanta. Houston, Phoenix, San Antonio, and Tampa, St. Petersburg. So if you're looking for comparable cities to Dallas, you know, those are ones to look at. In terms of investor demand, 4.33 out of 5. It is ranked number two on the list for investor demand, just behind Austin. So Texas is crushing that. In terms of development and redevelopment opportunities, they are 3.71 out of 5. That puts them about in the top 10 uh, in the country. Let's see here. Let's look at their industrial. They are number three on the list for industrial buy, hold, and sell. Looks like about 72% are buying, 25% are holding, and only 4% are selling. Of course. I mean, Dallas, of course, is going to be a logistics distribution hub for all of Texas, right? I mean, Dallas is very well located in the state, and you've also got a pretty corporate city uh, that has a lot of uh, attractors. Looking at local, public, and private investment, it is number one on the list at 3.76 out of 5, beating Charlotte, Austin, Denver, Salt Lake City. That's, that's pretty impressive. Uh, it is number two on the list for availability of debt and equity capital. If you are looking to put a project together, that means that Dallas is a pretty easy market. Well, relatively easy, right? I mean, it's, ne it's never easy to put a project together. Uh, but it is relatively easy to put together a deal in Dallas-Fort Worth. It's number two on the list behind Austin again. I mean, gosh, Texas, absolutely crushing it. Their local economy is 4.20 out of five, again, just behind Austin. So uh, number two on the list there. That's great to see. All right, this next article is from Dallas Culture Map. Uh, Dallas sizzles as country's second hottest commercial real estate market for 2021. I mean... No, no surprise at all. We've been talking about Texas quite a bit here. It looks like in a new survey from commercial real estate services company CBRE, commercial real estate investors rank Austin first and Dallas second among U.S. metro areas for investment prospects in 2021. Looks like they knocked uh, Los Angeles down to the number three spot. Dallas-Fort Worth ranked second in 2019 and 2020, while L.A. was first. So pretty interesting. Austin appeared at number three in CBRE's 2020 survey and number 11 in 2019. So Austin has jumped up that list as well. Looks like the Sunbelt markets of Austin, Dallas, Phoenix, and Atlanta were among the top performing metros where the least number of jobs were lost in 2020. Those metros, those, those four metros there remained relatively open, relatively business-friendly environments. So, of course, right? I mean, there were a lot of companies that 
that relocated out of California because they didn't like what was going on with uh, with the shutdowns. Um, you know, you look at Tesla uh, and Oracle. Those are two huge, huge examples uh, as to how detrimental California's reaction to COVID really has been for that economy. For the first time in the history of the CBRE survey, big-time investors, so those that manage assets of more than $50 billion, preferred smaller markets like Austin and Dallas over mega markets like New York City and San Francisco. Interesting. I mean, kind of like what I was saying earlier, they are starting to look at these smaller markets because they can get better returns. You could spend less money and get a better deal, uh, right? I mean, that's just kind of supply and demand. Looks like uh, they plan to see intense competition for good quality assets from all types of investors. Joel named Dallas and Austin rising star cities for investment in the U.S. And here's a, Mike McDonald, vice chairman of commercial real estate services at Cushman and Wakefield, says that Austin is the hottest market in the country right now. It is. I mean, it's number one on the ULI urban, uh, emerging trends list. The Sun Belt is doing well. I mean, you know, Dallas is just another example of, of the many, you know, cities in the Sun Belt that are absolutely crushing it because you've got a relatively good uh, climate, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's never, I mean, it gets hot, but it's not too hot. It's never too cold. Um, it's, it's, you know, of course, not quite like California. And the tax environment for most of these places are, are pretty, pretty attractive. Uh, it's also tough to beat the culture that you're getting out of these cities. Millennials love them. Uh, they, they, you know, it's, it's very attractive to your younger, educated workforce, uh, which is therefore attractive to, new, to, you know, to businesses. Why investors are big on the Dallas real estate market in 2021. This is from Roofstock. Looks like median home prices in Dallas are predicted to grow by nearly 16% this year. That's insane. Yeah, 16% growth in one year. I mean, can you imagine? It's higher than Nashville. That is. That's insanely. You buy a million dollar property and the next year you can sell it for a million one sixty. Come on. I mean, that's huge. Gosh. Um, let's see. An above average population of millennials driving everything right now. Right. I mean, millennials are starting to really take over uh, the population just in terms of numbers. Uh, and they and they're starting to make money. Robust inbound population growth and a thriving economy are just three of the many reasons why the Dallas real estate market and, uh, and there's demand for rental property. Let's see. Millennials flock there for the jobs and the big city excitement, uh, which is, you know, it's great. You kind of get that big city vibe, but it's in the south. You know, you used to have to go up to New York City. And it's just a totally different culture shock, totally different culture. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to be able to have a big city environment, but to still have a southern feel, to me, that's pretty attractive. Uh, families put down roots in the quaint suburbs. Retirees love the warm climate and quality of life. I mean, it's got a little something for everybody. Hmm. Population growth. Let's look at the key population stats. Home to over 1.3 million in the city and more than 7.5 million residents in the metropolitan area. See, that just shows you how sprawled it is. There's only 1.3 million people in the city and 7.5 million in the metropolitan area. Nashville is close to, what, a million in the city and 2 million in the MSA? So, I mean, you think about how, I mean, that's, that's crazy. That is a lot of people commuting. I mean, I'm telling you, those interstates and highways are insane. They are huge. They, they really built those to live up to the everything's bigger in Texas motto. Um, looks like the population in Dallas grew by 1.9% last year alone. That's crazy. 
It's the third largest city in Texas, fourth largest metro area in the country. Of course, of course, Texas has, yeah, topping off that list. Per capita income in Dallas is $36,200, and the median household income is $72,000. I mean, $72,000 median income is strong. Job market. The GDP of Dallas-Fort Worth, Arlington, is $523.9 billion and has grown by 62% in the last 10 years. That's wild. 10 years. Um, okay. Employment is growing at 2.89% year over year uh, with the metro area home to more than 3.8 million employees. Median household incomes in Dallas grew by over 3% year over year, while median property values increased by more than 11% in the past 12 months. Gosh, I mean, this, can you imagine what is going on out there right now? That's amazing. Just shows you how, how many people are moving. Right? I mean, cities don't grow like that unless you've got a significant amount of immigration. Okay, real estate market. Let's see. I mean, look at that. The the median household uh, is $237,000. That's incredibly affordable. Right? I mean, that's that's cheaper than Nashville. Home values increased. Yeah, Nashville's at like 325 right now. Yeah. They're at three, did you say 325? Yeah, in the three twenty five to three fifty range. That's crazy. So we're we're, you know, almost fifty percent yeah, fifty percent more. Give or take. Uh, over the last five years, home values in Dallas increased nearly fifty three percent. So averaging ten percent of the year ten percent a year for the last five years. That's that's really good. Okay, it's saying median sales of a single family home in Dallas is two hundred and ninety five thousand, according to the Metro Tex Association of Realtors. So I don't know what the Zillow home value index is. I don't know what that means. So, all right, we'll scratch that. We'll go with 295. That's still cheaper than Nashville. Well, yeah, the I guess their home value index, there might be a lot of homes sitting that aren't being sold, right, that are cheaper homes as opposed to the ones that are selling. Exactly. Yep, that's very true. Active listings, incre- uh, active listings of single-family homes have decreased by 55% year-over-year. Year. That means so many houses are getting bought and people are taking them up that they are not re-list- relisting them. Uh, which means that they have a tight home market. Interesting. It's an attractive rental market as well. Median rent in Dallas is nineteen ninety seven per month for a three bedroom home. That sounds really cheap. Gosh, it's funny. Like looking at this coming from Nashville, I'm like, man, compare Nashville to any major city, and usually we're really cheap. Looking at Dallas, I'm like, man, that's really cheap. Rents in Dallas have increased fourteen percent year over year. What? That's wild. Millennials and Gen Z make up 43% of the population in Dallas. Wow. I, I mean, I'm sure you're listening like, gosh, every time these guys read off a stat, they're just like floored. But, I mean, that's – these are all ridiculous stats. Um, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, we can talk about the quality of life. I mean, looks like uh, the cost of living in Dallas is about 50% less than urban coastal cities like San Francisco and New York. Forbes ranks Dallas as the second best place for business and careers in the U.S. Man, maybe we need to go start looking at projects in Dallas. Um, pro sports teams in Dallas include the Texas Rangers, Dallas Mavericks, NHL Dallas Stars, and the Dallas Cowboys, rumored to be the world's most valuable sports team worth $5.5 billion. 
that's crazy. I mean, good. I mean, good for Dallas. I mean, they're they're just absolutely crushing it. Not a surprise at all. If you've spent any time in Texas, that is a very fun market uh, to to just be in. Honestly. All right, let's move on to the future of commercial real estate. What are we going to be talking about today? Well, data centers have emerged as the darling child of North Texas commercial real estate. So again, there we go. Texas, again, this is an article from D Magazine. Uh, looks like the sector benefited largely from the same disruptive factors that challenged commercial real estate. I mean, think about it. Data centers, of course, are crushing it. They're going to be going up no matter what, because we as a society are moving more and more online. But as, as the world got shook by COVID, you know, investors started shifting where they were placing capital. Data centers are a pretty good one. This past year, a year marred with widespread uncertainty and unique operational challenges, few commercial real estate asset classes have emerged as a true darling child, quite like data centers. Interesting. The transition from work to home, widespread remote learning, and the virtualization of just about everything really sparked that. Looks like uh, 2020, our insatiable appetite for data grew even stronger. I mean, think about it. If you if you go, you have all these companies that are working from home, working remotely. Everybody's got to figure out how to to do that well, right? So it looks like every minute, Zoom hosted over 200,000 users in virtual meetings. Netflix users streamed over 400,000 hours of video. This is every minute. Customers spent in excess of one million dollars online. And DoorDash app users placed 555 meal orders. That's wild. Think about how much, uh, just how much data that starts taking up, right? Looks like the internet reaches up to 60% of the world's population now. Um, and of course, surged last year with everybody being online. Most commercial REIT stocks suffered significant losses in 2020. We covered that one a week or two ago. Pretty crazy to see some of those just REIT sectors taking massive hits. Um, they're, they're recovering they're close, close, you know, back to where they were. Um, looks like they outpaced the lowest performing REITs by nearly 50% and outperformed all other REIT subsectors with an annual stock performance of plus 19% overall. Data center spending reached record levels in 2020 led by the big three cloud giants, of course, Amazon, Microsoft, Azure, and Google. Looks like uh, the market for cloud computing also grew significantly with revenues of $90 billion, a year-over-year -year increase of 40%. So, of course, everybody last year was, was scrambling to try and keep up with the amount of Internet usage that was going on. It'll be interesting to see how that, how that really falls out after the pandemic uh, is really over because, uh, you know, of course, we're, I mean, we're still trending towards using, uh, using the Internet more and more, but... I would imagine people are going to get back to more in-person meetings, um, but I think we're going to be at least at a little higher level. So, I mean, I don't, I don't think we'll be quite to this level, but hey, anyway, they've got the infrastructure, right? Let's see here. Data centers have played a crucial role in the background, hosting critical medical and patient data in secured facilities, supporting the many apps and various media that have kept us informed and vigilant. Uh, and enabling essential uptime for our nation's emergency services during a global health crisis. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. Okay, this next article is from the San Francisco Examiner. Commercial real estate in 2021, it's time to get creative. Office space doesn't necessarily need to be used 
for workers in cubicles. Can't stand cubicles. Andy, you want a cubicle? Yeah, you can buy me one. I'll just you know, sit in there with my tuna fish sandwich, stink up the whole office. <laughs> yeah, of course you would. I'll walk over there um, just like in an office space. Hey, Andy, you uh, forgot to put a cover sheet on your TPS report. <laughs> you ever seen that I'm going to smash your fax machine, Tyler. <laughs> yes. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. But it also really shows you how working in a massive office, corporate office environment could be miserable. Um, let's see here. 18.7% vacancy rate in San Francisco, which was 6% in the first quarter of 2021 or 2020. Um, that's crazy. I mean, they, their, their vacancy rate tripled in the middle of COVID. 7.87 million square feet of direct vacancy and 7.99 million square feet of sublease space. That's almost 16 million square feet of ghost town. Wow. Representing more than a billion dollars of lost revenue at the average uh, of Q1's asking price of $73.76 a foot. That is a lot. That is a lot of money. Uh, the potential long term. That is a really high rent, too, Tyler. Yeah, $73. bucks a foot. I mean, that's more than twice like the cost of new construction in downtown Nashville. Now, could you imagine? Like, and that's their average. I think our average is in the 20s. That's crazy. Yeah. Long-term social impacts of the commitment to isolation. Uh, who knows? They don't know. Story for another time. But what are they going to do with all of that empty office space? You know, it's interesting because, like, Nashville doesn't have that problem at all. I mean, Na Nashville has not seen a tripling of its of its office uh, vacancy rates. Probably, probably not even close. Um, so, I mean, clearly San Francisco is going to have a come to Jesus moment. But it looks like they are planning on adapting. Uh, let's see here. Forbes is touting opportunities in commercial real estate. Someone feels good about this because unlike those of us who have been trained to think office space equals commercial space, there are many uses for commercial real estate besides setting up cubes for white collar workers. Well, that's true. Let's see. How about Amazon who needs endless space for distribution centers? Amazon's been buying up dead malls. They've bought 25 of them since 2016. I didn't know that. That makes a lot of sense though. Amazon has gotten approval to convert almost 4 million square feet of expired mall in Baton Rouge, Knoxville, and Worcester, Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, but Amazon probably can't retrofit soaring financial towers into distribution centers. They're too vertical. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, these towers typically lend themselves to good hotel conversions, multifamily conversions. Uh, we're starting to see vertical gardens, vertical farming becoming a thing, uh, depending on, you know, of course, how cheaply – they can get these spaces. Let's see. Enter the life sciences industry. Amazon and Big Pharma, along with a little good old-fashioned manufacturing, are going to save us. Okay. KKR, a private equity firm, just paid $1.1 billion for a building in Mission Bay that is 98.4% leased by Dropbox. When Dropbox, who bugged out of the building last March, has no intention of ever using the space again. Wow. That's, that's a lot of money to spend if, you're, if your tenant is basically saying they don't want it anymore. Um, let's see. Looks like life sciences concerns, in this case, Ver Technologies and Bridge Biopharma, have been subleasing space for labs and manufacturing. You can't make drugs over Zoom, and I don't know if you've noticed, but drug manufacturing is on people's minds right now. That is uh, that's pretty true. 
Pretty interesting. So the conversion is expensive. Somebody's got to pay for it and they want to make a profit. But the office buildings have views, you know. Um, let's see here. There are plenty of businesses that, that find value in that face-to-face employee reaction. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, Andy, what are your thoughts on that? Of course, I think drug manufacturing could be a good conversion. Uh, to me, it seems like a, a relatively unrealistic conversion. I feel like you could very cheaply manufacture drugs in warehouses an hour outside of town. You don't need to be in a downtown core, but you know, you've got a lot of, of travelers um, or you can convert them to apartments, to condos, to hotels, um, co-working. You can have a little mix of everything. You can have an indoor city, you know, have retail on one of the top floors, a restaurant on the top floor. Just kind of make this unique environment. I feel like that's going to be a lot easier to convert to and actually make sense than, than this. But what are your thoughts, Andy? I totally agree, Tyler. With an opportunity like this in San Francisco, this is where you actually have the chance to get in and do those massive conversions. Like everyone's been talking about office is dead, office is dead, retail is dead. You know, what are we going to do with all this dead space? Well, in most of the country, as you guys have seen, in the Dallas's, the Nashville's, the Austin's of the world, we we don't have a real estate is dead. In fact, real estate is greater than ever before. But in cities like San Francisco and New York, you know, rents are falling, vacancy is extremely high. This is actually an opportunity to make those conversions happen. What they said, however many millions of square feet are available. So I I do think that, especially with a 73 bucks a foot, uh, average rental rate i mean if if you can charge that much then you know i think you can easily justify moving into residential um unlike for some of the properties here in nashville right where it's just so it's just you're never going to get the money to to convert that sort of thing but for something like that in san francisco i bet you can make that work yeah i totally agree i mean it's got to be, I mean, it's not going to be cheap, but maybe you can get the building at a discount to, to justify it. All right, understanding the rise in long-term rates. This is an article from IMF. Uh, and Andy, I think you were going to take this one away. Yeah, this one's a pretty interesting article, Tyler. The IMF obviously being the International Monetary Fund. So straight from the the guys and gals over at the money management folks that try to look at the entire world and how interest rates work. And I think it's a very poignant article to discuss when we're talking about what is the future of commercial real estate look like, because everyone knows interest rates have been at rock bottoms in history, and they're slowly, slowly, slowly starting to rise again. So the question is, what is that going to do with our real estate values? What are we going to look at as real estate investors? And the easy answer for what happens when interest rates rise is that, well, property values go down, right? That's what people would assume because as interest rates rise, you know, you can pay less for a building because you're paying more in your servicing your mortgage. So as interest rates are lower, pay a smaller note and therefore per month, you pay a smaller note per month, and you can afford a bigger building. And if you can afford a bigger building, you'll pay more. So that's generally people are like, okay, interest rates being low, is good for real estate. 
So conversely, people might think, hey, interest rates being high would be bad for real estate. What the IMF is arguing is that that's actually not the case, that as long as we have a steady rise in interest rates, uh, and as you see here, obviously the 10-year treasury yield is slowly increasing. As long as we have a steady rise in interest rates, something that doesn't shock us, you know, with an absurd amount of inflation expectations, then actually the market is going to react and reprice itself accordingly. Because we have to understand why does an interest rate rise? Why are these 10-year treasury yields going up? The treasury yields are going up because, yes, there's some inflation expected. But why is that inflation expected? Right, we're really going down the rabbit hole here. But the, the reason why the inflation is expected is because people think the economy is going to do really well. So if the economy is doing really well, then there's more demand for goods and services. And if there's more demand for goods and services, then you're going to have more people who want to rent out and buy real estate. So actually, as long as the underlying reason for why these interest rates are going up is because of an increasing economy, we can actually see that you know, rising interest rates aren't going to have a negative effect on real estate value. So I thought this was a really fascinating article that kind of shined a light on, hey, you know, we, we always take these things maybe for granted, you know, low interest rates, good, high interest rates, bad. But, you know, as a real estate investor, that's really hardening news to know said, hey, it might not actually be as big of a deal as we thought, given the reason why the interest rates are rising. Yeah, that makes sense. So big, big takeaway there is real estate's going to do just fine over the next few years. At least that's what they're forecasting. Uh, don't let the interest rates rising scare you off uh, from, from acquiring more assets. Yeah, right, especially move. if you're in Dallas and you get 15% yeah. value increase per year. Oh, my gosh. If, if that continues, right, like it doesn't matter how high interest rates get. It's like just keep buying. Okay, moving into private equity deal dive. So this week, pretty big announcement from Two Sigma. They are applying data-driven investing to real estate with a new business and has tapped a former WeWork executive to lead the charge. This is from Business Insider. So quant giant Two Sigma is launching a real estate investing arm called Two Sigma Real Estate. Uh, it, it has spread into private investing with private equity, venture, and ESG funds. That's what? Environmentals? Uh, Social and governance. Uh, social and governance, yeah. Uh, the CIO of the new unit will be the former WeWork executive, Rich Gommel. Um, pretty interesting to see that they're making this big move. It's a, a $58 billion uh, unit that will be led by Tom Hill, the former Blackstone executive who joined Two Sigma in 2019 as a consultant, and Rich Gommel, former managing director at WeWork, um, who led the firm's real estate investment platform. So that's a pretty, I mean, that's quite the lineup. It's the fourth private investing business that Two Sigma has built, uh, and the second one since Hill has joined the firm. Let's see here. Talking data, modeling it, and then predicting what's going to happen in the next hour, next day, next week. Hill said, describing in simple terms the complex quant firm's process, maybe you can look at longer-term signals that can predict three, four, and five years out. I mean, it's, it's no surprise that... You know, we've covered this a couple of times in prop tech. I mean, artificial intelligence, 
and any any slight advantage that we can use technology uh, for in the world of commercial real estate is going to make massive waves in terms of profitability on projects. You just think about that. If they can predict what's going to happen the next day, next week, based on long-term data, pretty you know you can make better decisions. Um, that's not just from acquisitions. That can be again to controlling your HVAC and how often the building is getting cooled. Let's see here. Uh, real estate investing is a crowded space, of course, dominated by the likes of Hill's former firm Blackstone, which is one of the biggest in the world. If you're if you're not familiar with them. Uh, dozens of data scientists and thousands of data sets gives the venture a head start on long-term players. Pretty interesting. Again, we've talked about this before, about how the world of commercial real estate is relatively segmented, and there's not a whole lot of data out there, and whoever can capture the data will win. So there's a lot. it looks like there's a lot of firms that are moving in to try and take uh, advantage of that. There are that many firms that have the infrastructure in public or private markets to do this it creates a really high barrier of entry. Yes, of course it does. Looks like the firm has hundreds of employees with that hold doctorates. That's probably one of the most more intelligent workforces in the United States. More than 10,000 data sets that Goblin Hill believe they can put to work in finding the best investments in real estate. That's pretty crazy. Start thinking about that. You know, I mean, the world the world of real estate has largely been based off of, hey, I think this area is doing well, and uh, you know, we should go over here and do this kind of project. And it's and it you know, you'll try and find data to back it up, but it's largely based on, you know, your project history and, and everything else you've got going on. I mean, if you've got ten thousand data points that you could say, yep, we should buy this, and here's why, you're going to know for sure that that is a damn good deal. Uh, let's see. Real estate is ripe for innovation and advancements. Data on migration, employment, regional credit card spending can be indicators of where a city or neighborhood's rent is going. One project someone worked on recently was building an algorithm to predict which urban areas would get rent control protections next and when. That's crazy. I mean, if, you, if your machine can predict where rent control is going to happen next, well, you're going to sell your portfolio and stop buying in that area. Right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. Looks like the real estate arm has not yet fundraised on its own, but instead has invested capital from Two Sigma. Hill, who is the chairman of all four private investing businesses, believes it'll be a quick fundraise with the strategies prove successful when the, when the strategies prove successful, thanks to the firm's relationship with many large allocators. I mean, of course. Pretty cool to see. Nigel is uh, in the chat looking to get my first commercial property. The biggest obstacle for me is always funding. Yeah, funding your first deal is definitely tough. Um, I did a video on how I put together my first deal. You're welcome to go back into the archives and find that one. I think it's literally like labeled case study or my first deal or something like that. Um, but I talked about how I did that. I, I went to a couple of guys and raised money for it. Um, $50,000 each. I mean, it was a, you know, I had to put together $120,000. So it was a small project, but it was a great first one uh, because one, I learned how to put, put capital together, uh, but two, it gave me the confidence that I could do it, right? I, I always recommend not starting out with something big on your first project uh, because, you know, I mean, now we're doing three to $5 million cash raises on our investments and that can get stressful, um, but it, it's, it's, 
infinitely harder to pull off uh, because now we're having to have conversations with outside investors, right? I mean, the great thing about your first project is you can go to friends and family, like literally your family, and you know ask them for for you know money and all that kind of stuff to help you out. Um, if you are joining us live on the YouTube channel, uh, this week's question of the day: Which markets are you looking to invest in? Whether that's where you live or you're looking to invest elsewhere, let us know in the comments. I'm really interested to hear what you guys are doing. Moving into PropTech. So this week's first article, we're going to be diving into infusing data analytics and AI. Kind of like what I was just talking about, the future of commercial real estate is probably going to be with artificial intelligence. This is an article from Deloitte. The future of smart decision-making for real estate institutional investors and managers is AI. So let's see here. Uh, Institutional investors face a challenging environment. Several factors appear to be limiting growth and profitability for real estate institutional investors. There's higher risks and competition. You've had a lot of investors move into the market, um, which, of course, is, is going to uh, it's supply and demand, right? The more people that are trying to buy, the less supply there's going to be. Commercial real estate investors posted a negative average annual return in 2018, both globally. Interesting. I would not have thought that. Globally, it was negative 5.6%, and in the United States, it was negative 4.1%, whereas average annual returns were 6.4% and 6.9%, respectively, during 2014 and 2017. That's crazy. 97% of respondents plan to increase their capital commitment through 2019. However, their investment decisions are likely to be challenged by the geographic market, tenant, and financing interest rates risk. Also, growing headwinds around the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So this, this article is a little bit older. Let's see here. Geographic, tenant, and financing risks are the top three risks most CRE investors face. Looks like geographic market risk, 348. Scored 348. Tenant risk, financing interest rate risk, followed by portfolio investment Compliance risk, regulatory risk, climate change risk. I'm surprised climate change isn't actually higher on that list. Investors and investment managers can use data analytics and artificial intelligence in their existing acquisition disposition and portfolio management processes to manage rising risks and complexities more effectively and mitigate fees and margin pressure. I mean, of course, right? If you are, if you have all, you know, just like the latest article, if you have 10,000 data points, and you are able to properly track historical data, then you're going to be able to make a pretty good prediction off of what's going to happen next, um, which will make your job that much easier, and you'll likely become more accurate at making good decisions. Uh, Information such as net effective rents, leasing spreads, lease comps, market demand, tenant information have now become much more accessible and granular. I mean, again, commercial real estate is very, very fractured when it comes to that kind of data because people just don't like to share it. There is no commercial real estate MLS. So, you know, where where is that data, data going to be kept? Looks like alternative data sets from Internet of Things sensors, IoT sensors, social media, geospatial information, satellite imagery are increasingly being used. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, social media is huge. You think about the, just the retargeting you can do. So what is stopping investor firms from adopting data analytics? Looks like lack of awareness about new data sets and analytical techniques. Of course, if you don't know about it, um, then you're not going to really be able to implement it. Uh, 
commercial real estate has been stuck in the 80s since 1980. I mean, you've got a lot of guys that still sit sit in their offices and make cold calls all day trying to you know do deals, which to me is, is really interesting. Um, limited analytical capabilities. I mean, of course. Uh, if you don't have the data points, then it's tough to analyze them, right? Data risks and uncertainty of return on investment. Um, that's been the biggest thing. We've been talking about that quite a bit recently with our, you know, I've got, I've got a couple of buddies that run a prop tech advisory firm and we've got them advising us on a couple of projects. And that's the thing. That's one of the conversations that we have with them all the time. It's like, look, we would love to do all of this. We want to make our buildings greener. We want to make them more tech forward, but we've got to get a return on investment. How do we show that ROI? Because it's not always easy, um, you know, to, to show, to show those numbers. And then, of course, limitations of a heuristic mindset. The industry has long thrived on relationships, which is how many investors have traditionally gained access to unique information, right? I mean, it's all about relationships in commercial real estate. And that's shifted a little bit. I mean, of course, you know, people are willing to, um, you know, do deals more online, right? Like you see people who are watching video tours and they are doing... 3D tours, and they're, they're you know, I mean, we, we do that with the Cobble Group. I mean, we get a lot of, of flow, uh, traffic flow on our website from, you know, tenants across the country. Um, so it's not necessarily based on that anymore. We get investors from across the country just based on those those projects. It's not necessarily a, hey, you know, we, we've known each other for 20 years kind of thing anymore. Let's see here. Embracing data analytics and AI, the key benefits. Um, adopting data analytics and AI into existing processes can be particularly valuable during slower business environments. Series data is improving, of course, uh, looking to leverage analytics and AI across key steps in the investment lifecycle. Um, looks like you can use it from deal sourcing to portfolio management to risk management. These technologies can help increase efficiency and effectiveness of operational processes, such as information integration, investment accounting, and reporting. And so they give an example here. During due diligence, investors can use diagnostic analytics to understand the correlations between property performance and user movement within and around the property, weather conditions, and energy prices. You might be thinking to yourself, well, what is the value of that? Well, if I know that, uh, you know, maybe I've got a corner unit that's kind of off to the side uh, that may seem a little less attractive than some of the other units, but I can show a tenant, hey, actually, this suite has more walk-by traffic than any other suite in the center, then I might be able to lease that space now for a higher price per square foot than I would otherwise, because I just have the data to show, like, look, this is actually a good suite. I know it looks funky, but this is actually a good suite for you. So that's where all that data comes in. The, the better you know your stuff, the better you can pitch it, the, you know, the higher prices you can get. It's all about how well you know your market. Let's see here. Uh, moving on. This is an article from BizNow. Fifth Wall, taking smart rent public at over $2 billion valuation despite SPAC slump. Wow. We've talked about SPACs a couple of times uh, on the show here. These are special purpose acquisition companies. They're basically a way for you to go public without really having to go through the po uh, process of going public. Um, you know, I think that they're pretty sketchy. Um, Andy, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on SPACs? I've never really asked you what you thought about them. Tyler, so I have a lot of people who ask me on my live streams. I host live streams to talk to people about investments on my TikTok channel. And people ask me about different SPACs all the time because that's... You know, especially over the last few months, they've been super hot. 
and I'm telling people, it's like, a deal's never done until a deal is done. And people often make money on buying the rumor and selling the news. So what happens is that a deal will be announced on a SPAC, and then all of a sudden it shoots up, you know, the insiders cash out, and then the real deal, the details of the deal, what is actually signed to is way different on closing day, and then people get screwed. There's one really famous example was CCIV, Churchill Capital 4, which is Lucid Motors. Lucid Motors is a potential competitor to Tesla, and people were really excited about it. That thing shot up to 60 some $65 a share before crashing down to 20 And so imagine wow. if you were in there at 60 bucks a share and you got destroyed. So I'd say uh, if you are early on the game, you can uh, make money just like on Dogecoin. You can make money on anything like that. But if you're <laughs> late, you're going to be sad. Yeah, it's risky. It's really risky. Um, so it looks like uh, Fifth Wall is planning to take SmartRent.com Inc. public in a $2.2 billion deal. Uh, SmartRent specializes in smart home technology systems for apartment building owners and developers. So again, we're talking about the prop tech, you know, how this can increase the bottom line for all of these properties. Well, if I can decrease my operating expenses by even just a little bit, when you, when you multiply that out by a cap rate, it ends up saving you a significant amount of money. Um, or increasing the property of your value significantly, because um, that's just how these projects are traded. Looks like, okay. We set these incredibly ambitious lofty criteria to characterize a target for Fifth Wall's first SPAC. It's hard to imagine a company that could more authoritatively meet these criteria than Smart Rent. Um, let's see. Smart Rent was founded in 2017 with the goal of providing smart home features to apartment buildings, which typically lag behind single family houses in the adoption of such prop tech. Well, right. Uh, because you've got to get with the owners and convince them as to why they should spend the money on a hundred or 200 units, as opposed to a single home buyer who buys their home. And of course, you know, your average person, um, probably, probably more likely to, to adopt that kind of technology when they actually own the place. Smart rent tech allows landlords to operate thermostats, utilities, security, and other features of their properties from a computer or smartphone. That's pretty crazy if you think about it, being able to log in there and just control your common areas from your phone while you're sitting at home makes management a lot easier. Uh, it also provides tenants apps to support such smart home tech, uh, like virtual assistants, Siri, and Alexa. There's an opportunity to generate up to $1.5 billion in annual revenue from existing customers alone. That's pretty crazy. Looks like a number of major apartment landlords uh, plan to invest $155 million in the startup. That's pretty good when, you're, when your potential clientele is willing to put money into your company. That, that right there shows uh, that people are pretty, pretty interested in this. And um, not only this technology, but also the company. So uh, we didn't really cover this too much, but SPACs are also called blank check companies. Surged in popularity over the last year, 2020, right? Because they allowed company, uh, private companies to go public with more speed and price certainty than traditional initial public offerings. Why did they take off in 2020? Well, because everybody had poor cash flow. They didn't have really good financials, which meant if they went public the traditional route, they would not have done very well. Uh, however, these SPACs basically take them to market blind, 
Uh, and you know what happens is what Andy was telling you about, where you can buy something at sixty dollars a share and it crashes to twenty. Doesn't happen every time, right? I guess we got a caveat with that. Doesn't happen every time, but I mean, it's it's you know pretty. I don't trust SPACs personally. <laughs> Let's just say that. Jennifer says my landlord controls everything in my apartment. Uh, that's either a really good thing or a really bad thing, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty nice when you're, when you're able to monitor the building systems, um, like that, um, because you can tell immediately what's going on, what's wrong, what's not wrong, you know, what's operating correctly. Um, and again, turn lights off or turn the HVAC off when there aren't people there. Um, but yeah, you don't want, you don't want somebody having too much control over your own personal unit, right? So this is, uh, this is the website, smartrent.com. Of course, you're going to have a Tesla in the video, naturally. Parking management looks like, uh, I mean, this, this website's kind of all over the place. This doesn't even look, what is going on here? They, okay, well, you know what? They've gotten acquired for, or they went public for a lot of money. They need to update their website. This is terrible. <laughs> Self-guided tours, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, eliminating the, the, the need to do those in person. Um, why is it doesn't this website just doesn't scroll right uh looks like you can customize it to meet your property's demand um there's parking management and a parking centralized centralized parking database um man i can't figure out this website access control pretty cool so of course let people in and out of the building um smart apartments and homes yeah so it looks like they've got over 2,100 connected communities, 155,000 smart units and homes, a million connected devices, and 100 plus integrations. Pretty cool. I mean, I, I like uh, I like where this is headed because smart technology really just helps you. Um, I don't know, just live live easier. <laughs> it makes it a little easier to live. And talking about streamlining your processes, Tyler. I mean, a company like this, you know their website navigation aside, we would, (laughs) in the building that we're looking to do in Chattanooga, where we're going to have 36 apartment units, you know, this is something that we would highly consider allowing us to have virtual tours and being able to monitor all of our data, because as it stands right now, we don't have, you know, a huge property management presence out in Chattanooga. And if we can have tours being done remotely, you know, we can save so much on costs in, instead of having to pay someone to sit at the bottom floor and work there all the time. And I, I want to tie this back in to just the overall data and quant analysis that we were seeing in the private equity deal dive of how it's coming. This data is coming for real estate. And Tyler said it very accurately. We've been stuck in the 1980s since the 1980s. Real estate compared to stock the stock market industry and other investment banking and all that kind of stuff this has long happened this super data financialization of you know it's all mit graduates studying this stuff that happened a long time ago for every other industry in kind of the finance space it hasn't happened in real estate uh real estate is probably the most inefficient market uh, that has access to so much capital because people don't share all that information. That data isn't widely available and it's so relationship based, but that means it's, you know, that 
whoever cracks the code is going to make you know even more money and it also means that if you guys are looking to get in now you know no time is better than right now because into the future it's only going to get harder and harder and harder when you have these giant two billion dollar you know hedge fund firms with a hundred doctorates from mit studying every piece of data analysis meaning that it's harder for you to get in so we're not there yet right but you know I'd, i we want to encourage people to get in sooner rather than later before that happens and prices a lot of you know individual investors out of the market yep i totally agree that's that's a great point great point all right, let's move on into reading REITs. This is, of course, one of our favorite sectors here, showing you the world of real estate investment trusts. If you're not familiar with REITs, they are basically the stock version of real estate. So this one is coming at us from Seeking Alpha, Logistics REITs, sorry, out of stock. So, you know, look, being the stock version of real estate, you can look at almost real-time valuations of how these sectors are doing, which, you know, is good and or bad, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, right? Like REITs the past year have done, they got really just hit hard by the pandemic because you have investors being able to trade those shares whenever they want. Whereas in our commercial real estate projects, I didn't have somebody calling me every five minutes going, hey, your real estate's down. Hey, your real estate's down. Hey, your real estate's down. It, nothing changed, right? As far as we're all concerned, our portfolio didn't move. Um, and that's, that's proven to be true. But let's talk about logistics rates here for a second. Uh, looks like the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the fragility of global supply chains. I mean, do you all remember when like you couldn't get toilet paper, you couldn't get, I mean, there was weird random things that were just going out of stock and they just couldn't keep them stocked because people just kept buying stuff. But also like, you know, when, when uh, we shut off trade to China or when that all got delayed because ships were stuck out at sea for a little bit, well, they just couldn't even, we couldn't even bring stuff into the country. And we had this uh, mentality of, what was it, just-in-time uh, delivery where we didn't keep anything in stock. Everything was always like, you order it, we order it, and then it gets shipped kind of thing. And now we're moving more to this uh, just-in-case style of delivery where you're going to be really preparing ahead of time in case the logistics chain drops again. Looks like order delays and bottlenecks worsened amid the global economic reopenings, frustrating both businesses and consumers alike. Good selling businesses report historically low inventory to sales levels. The hub of e-commerce in the hottest property sector of the last decade, industrial REITs recorded the strongest earnings and dividend growth of any real estate sector in 2020. The pandemic slightly accelerated the penetration rate of e-commerce, which requires three times more logistics space. While not an immediate risk, tech-driven efficiencies could eventually impair demand. Stellar fundamentals rarely come cheap, and industrial REITs are priced for perfection. Similar to the red-hot housing industry, the trends of limited supply and robust demand should persist throughout this decade. Throughout the decade. So this will be a trend of the decade to keep an eye on. Logistics, real estate. Again, one of the reasons that Nashville is going to be doing so well, it's becoming a logistics hub of the South. So uh, I'll let Andy kind of dive into the industrial REIT sector overview um, and talk about these different companies. But it just makes sense that logistics REITs, 
would do so well. I mean, think about it. We talked earlier about how data centers are increasing in demand because of e-commerce. Well, all of these companies, you know, namely, namely Amazon, but everybody else is doing it too. They have to be able to store their items in order to ready ship them, right? And so if you're going to increase the amount of inventory you're going to have, you're going to have to increase your, your uh, warehousing, right? You've got to have the place to store it. Um, so, it, you know, it, it just makes sense. But Andy, take it away from here. I'll let you roll with this. Yeah, Tyler, I actually want you to scroll to the next graph here that says out of stock at the top. And look at that inventory to sales ratio. And again, this, this, this graph is a little bit misleading because so it goes high. from... It goes from 1.7 to 1.2, so that's not like you know 100 to zero all the way to zero. Graph. But don't, don't you just still, love when don't you just love when people make graphs like that? <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh, it's at zero, but that's so uh, much more dramatic. That's your uh, that's your high school high school training at MBA. They taught us how to anyway. Oh yeah, uh, it's still 50 percent decrease uh, in terms of inventory to supply ratio. And since the 90s, you see that we used to hold a lot more inventory in stock. And what Tyler was saying, that's because we've been shifting more and more to a just-in-time model of stuff. When you're in logistics and shipping and selling stuff, you know, back in the day in 1990, we didn't have all this, what we were talking about, data and IT technology and uh, AI to predict, you know, analytically exactly how much stuff and ser services and goods we would need right we didn't have that so people are just said okay let me just have a bunch of extra sitting around and that's why it's been driving lower and lower and lower over the last few years and then what happened uh-oh you know when when something like coronavirus happens everyone realizes actually not having all that stuff is is pretty bad for my business and the reason why and i want to frame this as a story of risk. The reason why people started having lower inventory was because they thought that was less risky. To hold less of your operating capital and in inventory seems like a less risky thing to do as long as you can fulfill the demand for goods and services. And while we had you know, very predictable demand for goods and services and supply chains, you know, it was fine. You only had to have just enough stuff to then ship out. But now I think people are realizing and you're seeing that inventories are expected to increase by five to 10%. The reason why that's going to happen, that these are going to go back up again, is because it's actually more risky to, we've maybe overcorrected. We've gone to too little inventory. If you have too little inventory, it's more risky because these weird events can happen, you know, someone can shut down travel from your from China to America, and then you can't get in your uh, goods, right? And then what do you do? Your business is toast. So you got to hold on to more stuff. There are manufacturing technology companies that are, there's a currently a semiconductor shortage that's affecting cars, it's affecting computers, it's affecting everything. And they're stocking two or three years worth of semiconductors ahead of time because they don't ever want to be exposed to a global supply chain issue ever again. So 
understanding that fundamental story of why we need more and more space is important because people are saying, hey, you know, I actually need more stuff than I thought. And e-commerce needs three times the amount of space as traditional retail does in term because you need all that stuff for storage. So that's really one of the big factors there. And uh, I do want you to scroll to the next graph as well, where you can kind of see um, how industrial REITs performed. And this graph is also kind of confusing at first glance. But the REIT average, you know, look at 2020, fell like 8% in some quarters. Look at industrial. It barely moved. So yeah, that it, shows it went up how at one point. well they did. <laughs> yeah, they even went up <laughs> compared to everybody else. So industrial REITs, storage, warehousing, cold storage, data centers, all these things that we've been talking about, it's not like demand for that's going to go away. And we're not only going to more e-commerce, but those e-commerce companies are going to require more space than even they thought before. So, And we've talked about this a few times on the show. You want these store centers in places that are easy to access by highway, right? And you have to have them in good places of town that have easy access to transportation. Well, those sites are, there's only so many, you know, there's, an, there's a finite amount of land that we have and good property that we have. So if those sites are all bought up, oh my gosh, these prices are going to get higher and higher. And that's going to be even better for industrial real estate and even better for the industrial real estate REITs. So these are kind of all the factors that we want to keep in mind. The one caveat here, and it's nearer to the end of the article, the one caveat here is that potentially there's a risk of Amazon taking over the world, which is kind of the risk that we all have to deal with in general. But the risk of Amazon taking over the world is that other smaller players are going to get priced out of the market and go bankrupt. And so if all the other smaller retailers go bankrupt, then Amazon controls all of the pricing. And if they have a monopoly on the pricing, then obviously there's less competition and it's going to be harder. Yeah, it's the five reasons to be bearish there. It's like, we, we understand the bullish reasons, but they're sensitive to potentially those e-commerce giants like Amazon being so powerful that they just become a monopoly. And then they just said, hey, I'm going to pay half rent today. And then you're like, oh, you can't do that. And, they, yeah, and then they say, yes, we can. We are 99% of e-commerce. <laughs> so that is your one caveat to keep in mind. But, you know, that's going to take a long time to happen. And in the meantime, even over the next decade, you know, I unless something incredibly crazy happens, it's like I still hope that there will be competition from other sources other than Amazon. Maybe they'll rule the world by the end of the century. But, you know, for the next 10 years, we hopefully are not going to be ruled by Jeff Bezos yet. Yeah, hopefully, right. Everybody thought that about Walmart and then Amazon came along. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes next and, and dominates them. Uh, Jennifer's saying, unless the government breaks them up, I mean, that's possible, I would think. I mean, you know, you see Facebook is starting to encounter a lot of issues with that. Google is starting to encounter a lot of issues with that. I mean, they're just reaching the breaking point. They're all becoming too powerful. And I, 
you know, it'll be interesting to see how they decide to intervene there, right? All right, Andy, let's get into this week's wild card. What do you have for us? All right, Tyler, I think I have a pretty interesting topic for this week's wild card, and I want to thank you guys so much again for sticking us with, you know, with us here to the end of the CREI Commercial Real Estate Investors Weekly Podcast. This is the wild card section where I touch on. I want to touch on something cool and interesting and different in the realm, the wild and wacky realm of real estate, where you know we're learning so many different things every week, and we want to be just showing you guys some of the cool things that you can be doing and opportunities that you potentially can be looking at. And so what we have here today is actually converting and reusing movie theaters. Now, I mentioned before that I talk all the time on my financial live stream. People ask me all the time, Andy, is AMC going to the moon? Are, are they going back up? Please tell me that they're going back up. And I always have to sadly shake my head and say, I'm sorry, young grasshopper. I don't think AMC is going to do very well because here's the problem right everyone knows that movie theaters have been shut down and obviously the reopening of the economy is good for the movie theaters but fundamentally there's been a massive shift in the population we're not having as many people going to go back to movie theaters as they were in 2019 right i think everybody can agree that maybe there's going to be a 10 to 20 percent reduction there also movie theaters no longer have 100% control over all of the distribution of movies, right? Used to be, if you want to see the blockbuster movie, if you want to see the latest Disney movie, you have to go in person to the theater. Well, guess what? Disney now sends their movies straight to online. Ryan, the last dragon and Mulan and whatever else goes straight to Disney plus, right? And you have Amazon uh, with their online services and Netflix with their online services and making their own movies. And those aren't being shown in theaters necessarily, or they might not be shown in theaters first. They might go on concurrently. So theaters no longer have that distribution component. And if that's the case, they're not going to do very hot because you guys have to remember the biggest movie theater chain in the country, AMC, was unprofitable in 2019 before Corona. So if they were unprofitable in 2019 and now it's 2021 and they're only going to have maybe 80%, 75% of their customers at their peak going forward, oh my gosh, movie theaters are doomed. And so it's important to understand the fundamentals of businesses that operate within the real estate sector, right? Because obviously something like a movie theater is very highly dependent if you're a movie theater owner, your value of the building is very highly dependent on movie theaters being around. So the question is, what can we do with these movie theaters that are likely going to have major pain over the next few years? And this article is from the Wall Street Journal that says, Gone with the wind, pandemic theater threatens to reduce movie theaters to rubble. And you see this picture here of the movie theater being teared down. And... I like to look at this chart here. I mean, even look compared to 1995 to uh, 2020, there used to be 7,100 movie theaters and that fell to 5,500 movie theaters in 20 some years. And that's likely to happen, you know, it's likely to accelerate. And the problem with these theaters is that cinemas tend to be tough properties to move or repurpose 
because of the sloped floors and multiple rooms, especially in a commercial property market expected to get crowded with closed retailers, small businesses, and office. Movie theaters are single-purpose buildings, says Paul Glantz. And that's a problem. We want to talk to you guys here all the time about flexibility in real estate. How do you protect your real estate investment? Have a building that has multiple uses, that has ability to be changed and adapted to different tenants because it's hard to predict the future. No one could have predicted Corona, but it has fundamentally reshaped our entire lives, how we operate, how we do business, how people, humans fundamentally interact. So if that's the case, you don't want to be owning a property that only has one use. Because if that use, necessarily, if that use goes out of style, you might be left holding the bag, right? So, you know, groups like Cinemark, you know, smaller movie theaters are are closing uh, lots of other, their individual operations. This guy, Byron Berkeley, is going to settle down and shut down potentially his Kilgore, Texas, four-star cinema. So he's just probably going to tear it down just because it sits on the main highway. So they claim that tearing down is more attractive than renovating because these stadium seatings are housing separate, separate auditoriums and all the walls that require are harder to convert than an old department store. That's essentially a massive empty box when stripped of its aisles. So now people are always want to think about, Hey, why don't we just reuse these old buildings for something else? And those the idea is great in theory, but here we're kind of running up against the reality. It's not that easy. You start peeling back like an onion and all of a sudden, geez, look at this. The whole section supports the wall. That's pretty bad. So, you know, talking about Gone with the Wind, no matter how the the movie theaters are doing, you know, it's kind of like what Red Butler says. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. They're going to they're gonna do badly and they're not going to do potentially well into the future. So can we actually give them a second life? The Wall Street Journal article made the argument that they're probably going to be torn down. But this Bloomberg article argues that there may be a few things that we could do that, you know, you guys might be able to push for in your own city, in your own, you know, in your own town, if you're seeing a movie theater closing instead of being torn down, which is, you know, probably the baseline, base case scenario. What can we do to potentially save it, right? And they're talking about how AMC and Regal Cinema is having a lot of pain. There's a long tradition of adaptive reuse, actually, when it comes to the older generation of the neighborhood movie houses. These smaller facilities facilities often see a second life as community theaters, churches, gyms, and bookstores. The electric vehicle startup Rivian recently announced plans to turn a 1930s-era Laguna Beach theater into an elegant showroom. So... You know, first, I'm waiting for Rivian to get my electric pickup. They need to go ahead and start making those because they've been teasing it for the last five years. But also, that's something interesting, too, is that, you know, it's those smaller theaters that can now be churches and gyms and bookstores. It's like if you have a place where people can gather, then think of other uses where a lot of people can gather, right? Um there's a property that we own currently right now in Madison that 
turned an old movie theater for the site into their church, right? And they have this, because of it, because it used to be an old theater, it has this wide open area and it's, you know, it's stepped down and it's, and this, you know, the bottom is, is lower, much lower than the top. And it's like an inside amphitheater because it used to be an old movie theater. And that's perfect for a church use and something like that. And here Bloomberg is telling us the same thing. They can be poor candidates for adaptive reuse because it's hard to reinvent. But in some modern movie theaters might have an opportunity, right? It, 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 looking here, PMB, a development firm focused on the medical field, turned a 1980s multiplex in Goodyear, Arizona into a collection of medical offices. That's pretty cool. The nine screen theater from in Flagstaff turned it into the country's most creative DMV. So they turned it into a 72,000 square foot Arizona Department of Transportation headquarters and motor vehicle divisions office, right? So they had to cut in windows to the walls and work on challenges like that. But they said the end result, which split the high ceiling theaters into two stories with a mezzanine floor speaks for itself. So if you can find the right tenant and find the right opportunity and think of different uses for this space that involves and requires a lot of people, they said design for public access, right? A movie theater is designed for public access. Well, you know what buildings aren't well designed for public access right now is DMVs <laughs> and standing in line for forever. So if you can partner with the Arizona Department of Transportation and make that building more accessible, I think you're going to make a lot of people happy, right? And they say here, contemporary movie theaters often plenty of valid reuse potential, prime locations with lots of empty square footage if developers get creative. If you can make $5 million and do something that's repeatable and easy, or make $1 million doing something incredibly complicated, essentially building a battleship inside of a bottle, how many people are going to sign up for the latter? Not as many, but there is opportunity there. And so that's what uh, I wanted to highlight for you guys today, right? Where you have these shuttered cinemas have reused possibilities, potentially even as we're talking about industrial e-commerce warehouses and facility and fulfillment centers with big and bulky items where you can take advantage of those tall ceilings. You were just talking about how in Nashville, you know, the latest Amazon facility has what 90 foot ceilings was it? And yeah, 92. With those 92 foot ceilings. And those, a lot of those movie theaters are going to have ceilings that high. So potentially you could turn it into some sort of storage warehouse, last mile delivery, because again, they're well situated. They're always in good locations because that's where people wanted to go in the past. So let's say a movie theater isn't there, but what are the things that we can take advantage of the space and the location to provide a new use for other people? And Tyler, I really wanted to highlight this topic today because, you know, I think it was pretty poignant for the current moment in which we're living, where we're trying to figure out what are we going to do into the future? What are some of these buildings? We're talking about San Francisco, where they have 25% vacancy. You know, what are we gonna do with some of these buildings? What are we gonna do with the theaters that end up closing down? And it's something that I think we're very passionate about at our company, that of adaptive reuse and trying to figure out how we can make use of old buildings 
and not have to tear them down because it's bad for the environment. And if you can do it the right way, you can build a project for a lot cheaper and you can make a good return as well. So there's just a lot of benefits that if people are creative, if you can really put your thinking caps on and think about what are the other opportunities taking advantage of why an asset was built in the first place. There's a lot of advantages for people who are out there and making those creative decisions moving forward. Yeah, there's something just inherently neat and cooler to do an adaptive reuse project than there is to just come in with something new construction. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love developing a brand new project from scratch, but when you have the opportunity to reutilize something that's existing, I mean, it kind of goes with that ESG type of, of development, right? You're going for the environmental side of things. You're reusing what's already existing. It's inherently greener than it would be to go and buy all new lumber and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's pretty cool. I like that. Nick jumped in the live chat. Flagstaff, that was a very interesting project. Lived right behind that theater when it was being converted. I bet that was fun to watch because, you know, you, you see the life that it had. You see it kind of die down, and then you get to watch what it becomes. Um, and I think, you know, we've been talking about that a lot with retail in general. If you know, if you can get creative with your projects and you're willing to think a little bit outside of the box – there are any number of uses for a, an empty movie theater. I mean, I think that those are so well positioned to become anything from a church to a gym to a data center or a call center. You could have indoor storage. I mean, there's there's so much that you could really do with one of those projects if you're willing to get creative. Andy, thank you for the wild card this week. Um, thank you to all y'all for uh, for following the show, the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. We come to you guys live 5 30 p.m central standard time on mondays uh feel free to tune in and ask your questions live if you're watching on the youtube channel don't forget to like and subscribe and if you're listening on the podcast please rate and review so that we can keep bringing you guys this content each and every week and we will see you all next monday or tomorrow <laughs>